This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show. This is our segment, Your State You, with Max Page. Max Page is the vice president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, also the president-elect of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. He will assume his new office on July 15th. Congratulations again on your election, Max Page. So pleased you can be with us every week. It's just so interesting and so important, I think, for our listeners that you can share with us what is happening in the state legislature and with education issues, educational issues across the Commonwealth. This week, there I know the MTA is very involved in something that I think almost all of our listeners care a lot about, and that is the Supreme Court's decision to overrule Roe. The legislature in Massachusetts is taking action such as it can to try to uh, enhance and protect a woman's right to choose. I know the MTA is involved. Tell us what's going on, please. Yes, Bill. Um, So the MTA is part of the the coalition, um, was part of the coalition that uh, pushed for the Roe Act in Massachusetts to make sure that... um, abortion was rights were protected in Massachusetts because we feared exactly what has now happened. Um, but then we also are part of the coalition that's supporting what was now just uh, passed by the House of Representatives in Massachusetts, um, Bill 4930, which provides um, a number of further pro- for further protections for um, uh, reproductive rights in Massachusetts. And it's, you know, uh, you know, we often talk in this show about, you know, there's there's lots to criticize at times about what the legislature does. But the legislature, frankly, also with the support of Governor Baker, had moved forward on that Roe Act and then also um, is moving forward. I think very will move very quickly on these further uh, protections. Yes. The, the Roe Act, of course, codified in Massachusetts, made the law of Massachusetts. In addition to our state constitutional protection of abortion, it codified Roe. Uh, along with other protections for women. Uh, And the new legislation is intended to, in fact, try to protect women both in-state and who come here from out-of-state so that reproductive choice remains a choice and the Constitution remains the Constitution. Privacy remains the right to privacy and the right to abortion means a right. A right is something that can't be taken away unless, of course, you are a six-justice supermajority on the Supreme Court. I read yesterday, Max, that in order to have this bill considered and passed and uh, brought to the governor in a timely manner that the legislature might have to uh, take a special vote to continue its session. Can I wasn't completely sure about uh, what that meant or if the legislature would do it or had to do it. Can you help me out with that? I'm, I'm not exactly sure, Bill. I mean, they are, of course, in the middle of their the working at the budget and about, uh, you know, dozens of other bills they're trying to get done before what they have set as their formal deadline, which is July 31st. So that's, you know, that's that's very soon in legislative terms. I think there's also a question of if they move a bill very close to the end and the governor decides to veto it or veto sections, they would need to give him enough time to have made that veto and then give themselves enough time to override the veto. So um, that may be the, some of the calculations that are going on is how quickly this all can move, given that obviously this is zoomed to the front of the agenda, but there are still lots of bills. And of course, the state budget, which is due today. I mean, they're supposed to have a budget by July 1st. We are often late in Massachusetts, um, even though we've been doing a little bit better in recent years. 
So all of those things I think are, are, are in play. Could you stop there for one sec and tell us whether or not we actually are going to have a budget uh, on July 1st or anytime close to it? And what's the holdup? Uh, I, uh, I, you know, uh, if, to predict what goes on in that conference committee, that's the, the, the conference committee of Senate and House leaders or House uh, um, you know, appointed people who are who negotiate the differences between the two budgets. Uh, that would be folly to predict exactly what's hap- what would happen. However, um, my sense is that it will happen in due time, meaning sooner rather than later. It's not something that will suddenly go off into August. I think there is a fair level of uh, support, frankly. I mean, it's a fair level of agreement, and there still is a lot of money, frankly, um, from you know from some of the, the the revenues that have come in and the like, so that there isn't there there may be a way in which all boats can rise. That things that the Senate wanted can get they can get things that the House wanted they can also get, as opposed to a very intensive horse trading that often goes on. How does education do both higher education and K K through twelve in this budget? Um, well, you know, the, the legislature has continued to um, fund the Student Opportunity Act. Uh, this is the big funding bill for for uh, changing the formula for for um, spending for public schools that we won back in 2019. And they have caught up post pandemic with what they the seven year rollout. So they are on schedule, fully funded. So that seems absolutely clear and good. And um, higher education did did somewhat better, definitely did better this this um, this cycle, at least between the House and the Senate. The, the, the they agreed upon numbers are actually, you know, several several percentage point increase as well as increase in funding for financial aid for our students. It's not the kind of reinvestment we need that we've talked about on the show. The Cherish Act, really a dramatic reinvestment like we're doing for public K-12 schools but it certainly was a, a, a decent year. And we're going to gear up post winning the fair share amendment for a bigger investment in public higher ed. Well, let's talk about that because the fair share amendment, the vote will be on, in November, the first Tuesday in November uh, on election day, the fair share amendment. And I know there has been a lot of movement and a lot of activity, although people have a hard time focusing on uh, uh a, a certain degree of politics uh, uh, come the middle of summer, but there's a lot going on with the fair share amendment. So bring us up to date about that, please. Well, what's great is that um, people, set regular citizens are joining the campaign and going door to door canvassing. It was a great one I was part of in Northampton last week, East Hampton yesterday. There's going to be one in Amherst on July 14th. And that means people going to specific neighborhoods and going literally door to door and talking about um, the fair share amendment. And I think that is obviously a, a key to victory because the million, the multimillionaires and billionaires, um, if they're going to fight this, they are, they're not going to have a whole army of regular citizens saying, please protect the excessive wealth of the very, very wealthy in Massachusetts. So that's something the 99% have, which is people willing to say, you know what, let's make our tax system fairer and then take the $2 billion generated by a very small increase on the on um, income over a million dollars and let's invest it in public schools, public higher ed, 
and public transportation. Yeah, I know we talk about this as, and sometimes it's referred to as the millionaires or the billionaires tax, but it's not really a tax on wealth. And I think that's important. You can have $10 billion, and if it's all sitting in cash in your basement, your total tax bill goes up zero. What it is, is is a tax on income in a year over a million dollars. Your first million dollars, you don't pay one penny more. Not one penny more on your first That's million. That's correct. But you're going to pay four cents more on income on dollars over a million dollars. And that is actually a substantial amount of money that is uh, earned, uh, accumulated uh, by well, billionaires for the most part, um, uh, because they have income over a million dollars. And I just don't see how the four cents on the dollar over the first million is going to really affect them. I mean, it will make their communities richer and better and more vibrant, and they'll make more money that way. I mean, it seems to me it's it's an investment more, uh, more than a tax. But I'd appreciate if you think I have any of that wrong. Well, well- no, Bill, exactly what you say is right. I mean, uh, the we, we focus on the investments in in public education, public transportation. But the truth is those investments make Massachusetts a good place for business and a good place to make money. I mean, and I'm not in this to, you know, you know, save every millionaire here. But in fact, states that have invested have raised taxes on the wealthy and put it towards good uses like public education and public transportation. California, New York, Minnesota have actually seen their economies boom. And we understand that, especially in Massachusetts, which is um, not a state with a lot of diamond or gold mines or oil oil wells, but rather a place of um, ideas and education and innovation in a variety of fields like that when you when you invest in public education, you are investing in all the the, the basic foundation of what makes um, us prosperous. And I think we've spoken about how um, General Electric moved its headquarters from Hartford to Boston just before the fair share amendment was supposed to be on the ballot in 2018. That it was kicked off by the Supreme Judicial Court. We can get to that story. We've talked about it before. But the point is they moved at that moment um, when they had potentially huge tax increase, not huge, a tax increase for some of their executives. And they were asked about that. And the chief executive said, that matters not a bit to me. What I want looking at our new office building is to see all those educated college students who will come work for us. And that's what, of course, Massachusetts offers. So that was an interesting um, Interesting perspective from a from a business leader. Because in Massachusetts, we have capital. It's human capital. That's right. People are our capital. People are our resource. And so we invest in our resource, which is our people. It's really, I think, a, a model that is brilliant and will bring us more prosperity. Listen, I know we were talking before we went on the air, Max. Uh, you, you've run into some arguments against the uh, a fair share amendment that you'd like yeah, to talk about? Uh, the, the main uh, thing that's going to happen, everyone's going to start to see over the summer and then intensifying in the fall is a series of uh, misinformation and frankly, some outright lies coming from the other side because their their goal is to is to try to, to raise reasonable doubt in your legal terms, Bill, about this, it's about the fair share amendment. So here's one that you, you'll start hearing. 
hey, look, I bought a house. <coughs> excuse me. I bought a house in 1970 for you know $200,000 and it went up and it, it's worth a million dollars now and I'm going to sell it and that's you know that's kind of my nest egg for retirement. So now you're telling me you're going to tax me a ton of money on that? All right, so let's explain that. Let's say you you and your wife buy a house for $200,000 and now it's worth a million. The gain on that house is eight hundred thousand. It went from two hundred thousand to eight hundred to a million. Guess what? You're not subject to the tax at all. You've gained eight hundred thousand dollars, and therefore there's no tax because the tax only goes over a million dollars on income over a million dollars. But let's say that say your house actually grew to from two hundred thousand dollars, and it actually now is valued at 1.7 million let's say that okay so now uh, or let's let's say it's whatever gone up to 1.5 million so now you say now i'm really going to get hit by the tax well guess what your gain is 1.3 million two hundred thousand dollars up to 1.5 so that's a gain of 1.3 million but everyone every couple can can write off a half a million dollars of gain on their own home that they sell so suddenly, it looks like you're you're going to be hit with this tax because you had a gain of 1.3 million. Actually, not. Your gain officially in taxes is 800,000. And again, you are not hit by this tax. So you're going to hear a lot about from the other side that, you know, homeowners who have saved up their nest egg are going to hit by this. Only there's only one county in Massachusetts where house the average house cost is over um, 1.5 million dollars, and that's Nantucket. So forgive me, you know, if you are in, on Nantucket and have a house that's worth many millions of dollars and may have to pay a tiny bit more when you sell, but the vast, vast majority of residents in Massachusetts will not get touched by this at all, even if they sell their home and it's gone up in value. And the fair share amendment, we should note, will bring in, it is estimated, approximately $2 billion a year for Massachusetts that will be spent on education and transportation. That's correct. Max Page, thanks for being with us every week. We really appreciate it. Go have a great weekend. All right. Thanks, Bill. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Hearing the verdict and hearing the words racial animus were extremely painful for, certainly for myself and for the women and men of the Greenfield Police Department who really do go to work every day to serve the people of Greenfield. 101.5, 1400, and 12.40. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Your weed eater. We mean weed whacker, but weed eater fits better in this ad. Makes life simpler. Well, now the mortgage eater from Franklin First does that as well. Franklin First reintroduces the mortgage eater loan. The loan that pays off your first mortgage or works as a second mortgage to give you financial flexibility. Mortgage eater loans start at five-year terms and have no closing costs. So visit franklinfirst.org, get all the details, and apply online. Franklin First Federal Credit Union, member NCUA, equal housing lender.
My name is Joanne Vanine. I am a CASA worker, court-appointed special advocate for the organization Friends of Children. I first got involved with the CASA program back in 2004. I was still full-time employed at that time as the uh, dean of students at UMass Amherst. The case that inspires me relates to a young man. There were issues of physical abuse. There were issues of drug abuse. Through the advocacy work that I did, this young man was placed with a family in Springfield. It was a rocky start. But the good news is that this foster family stepped up and said that they would adopt him. Almost immediately, I began to see the change in him in terms of his own confidence in himself, which clearly derived from a sense of security. And that also was evidenced in the way he performed in school. The really happy ending to this is I got a text message saying to me, look at my report card, and he is on the honor roll. Learn more about becoming a CASA advocate by visiting Friends of Children's offices on Route 9 in Hadley or going to friendsofchildreninc.org. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult hoping to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam. The Literacy Project offers free classes at five locations in Franklin and Hampshire counties. We also offer classes to help you prepare for college and to help you plan for a career. If you want to learn, the Literacy Project is the place for you. To find out about Literacy Project classes in Northampton, call 413-584-6755. To find out about our classes in Greenfield, Orange, Amherst, and Ware, Check us out online at literacyproject.org. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you want support furthering your education and accomplishing career goals. If you want to learn, the Literacy Project is the place for you. Space, a final frontier. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is our time with Hampshire College professor and astronomer Salman Hamid. Thank you so much for being with us, Salman. We were talking before we came on the air about the James Webb Space Telescope, which I confess I haven't thought a lot about recently. It's been kind of a busy news cycle or two <laughs> or five or ten over the last 30 days. Um, but a million miles away, taking in literally the big picture... Um, the James Webb Space Telescope, and there are, it is anticipated that uh, by mid-July there will be some announcements or disclosures from uh, that project. What's going on a million miles away up at the James Webb Space Telescope that's circling, uh, is in orbit with the Earth, as, as I understand it? Yes, maybe you could explain that to us again as well as tell us what's new a million miles away. Thank you, Bill. And uh, and yes, this is a perfect uh, moment. Uh, I thought you were going to say that for the last six years, we haven't really thought about it. But <laughs> but you know, there's always something going on. But yes, uh, I, I I understand. And uh, and and who knows? By the time the first images are released, what will be in the news? But uh, but I should mention. Okay, so uh, in all seriousness, James Webb Space Telescope, which is the in some ways a successor to Hubble Space Telescope. And Hubble Space Telescope revolutionized astronomy because of the images it provided. And this telescope uh, is uh, what it, from everything that we know about it, it's a worthy successor. 
And it's going to tell us a lot more about the universe than Hubble Space Telescope did. It's a million miles away. And it works not in the visible spectrum, the light that we see, but rather in the infrared. And that allows us to explore some elements of the universe that Hubble Space Telescope really couldn't. Okay, so stop there f for one moment to explain to us again, just because I have trouble keeping this in my mind. It's a million miles away, and it's in orbit, sort of. It's tracking the Earth. Explain that to me, if you would, again. Right, so it is... For those is, of us uh, who are in the well, back of the class and, you know, don't get, get it all that quickly, okay? It is uh, at a point which is called Lagrange point. There are five Lagrange points. These are points where, in some ways, you can think about where the gravity of uh, the Earth and the Sun balances it out in a particular way. So it's easier to stay around that point. So it is in a point which is farther away from the Earth, if you're going from the sun, it's away from the Earth. And it just follows the Earth around. So you can have a spacecraft around that point and it follows the Earth. Now, what, what is the advantage of it? Well, first of all, you, can, you are always in touch with the Earth. Second thing is when you look up, look away from the sun, you should not look at the sun in any case, unless you are a solar telescope, which some telescopes <laughs> are. Or our former brave president during an eclipse. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So when you're not looking at the, uh, the sun, you have the entire universe to look at. It's not being blocked, really, by the sun or the earth. And you are looking at it while it's going around in orbit. And so it's a great location. And the other reason why you want to be far away is that you are in cold space. And for the infrared, one of the problems with that is it's called thermal radiation or heat can produce uh, sort of like, you know, uh, in infrared, Earth produces a lot of infrared emissions. So if you are far away and your instruments are allowed to cool down, then your instruments can actually function really well. This cannot happen sort of like if you are close to the Earth. And so one of the reasons why, remember uh, James Webb Space Telescope got uh, or was launched around Christmas time. And, and it got there uh, like you know, after a few weeks. And then since then it has been, the instruments have been cooling down and astronomers have been testing images. They've had a couple of test images and they already so far, they've been amazing. And uh, except like, you know, that uh, they, we also found out uh, a few weeks ago that at the end of May, a, a few tiny uh, particles, uh, micro meteoroids they also hit the mirror so that did happen but but astronomers are confident that it did not sort of like damage the telescope really significantly and it's not going to impact um like you know, no pun intended but it's not going to impact uh, the results all of that said the key thing to focus on is july 12th because on july 12th first scientific images from James Webb Space Telescope are going to be released. And knowing NASA, knowing their, I mean, like, you know, and, and I'm saying it in a positive way, in a loving way, their PR machine, <laughs> they really learned their lesson from Hubble Space Telescope where, I mean, each image was sort of like, you know, especially in the early days for the first few years, each image was sort of like, you know, 
a blockbuster. I would say much bigger than, I'm not a big fan of it anyways, not, not much bigger than a Marvel movie release, but rather than the original Star Wars or like, you know, and things like that, sort of like, you know, with a big release. And in the same way, I think the first image they would have, the first target that they would have would be picked perfectly that coincides in terms of the beauty of the image and the public interest in it. Okay. I understand, which isn't much, I grant you, but my understanding is that the James Webb Space Telescope is looking, in a way, back in time to images of planets and galaxies that may not have existed for billions of years. Explain what the images are apt to be of. But so are you every time you look at the stars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's when you are looking at me. You are, There's you always one in the I'm, class, one guy with his hand up, his hand <laughs> waving around. Call on me. I know, no, I know, I know. I just interrupt. <laughs> uh, uh, right. So the, well, I, I was going to say the problem, but I would say you can also uh, think about the advantage uh, is that the speed of light is finite. And so it takes a while for light to reach us. So whatever we are seeing as um, Bill, we are, by the way, on Skype for people who uh, who are on radio, uh, like you know, which is ancient Skype technology in and of itself at this point. <laughs> that, that's right. And so you can see me, and the light that is getting to your eyes from your screen—it's also taking a finite amount of time. So, it, but it's 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 very quick, so you don't notice it. But if you look at the sun, you are looking about eight minutes in the past because that's how far away the sun is. So when it's light get to us, it is already the sun is eight minutes uh, sort of like, you know, farther away. So, so meaning to say that if the sun switches off right now, you will not know it for another eight minutes. So you're looking Oh, back no, no, no. I turn into CNN. They tell me. They let me know. I'm sure. <laughs> that's right. And so the nearest star, for example, Proxima Centauri, that's about four light years away, meaning to say when we see it, we are looking four years back in time. So you can play that game and keep on going farther and farther away because light from an object that is farther away will take longer to get to us and so you are looking more back in time that's the key relation so if you look at the sun you are only looking back eight minutes in the past because sun is relatively close by compared to proxima centauri because that is so far away that it's light takes four years to get to us so you can in theory go and look at the very first galaxies that formed close to 13 billion years ago, if you can look at galaxies that are so far away that the light has taken 13 billion years to get to us. So the principle is exactly the same. When you look at Proxima Centauri, you're looking back four years in the past. If you're looking at a galaxy that is 13 billion light years away, you are looking at a galaxy that it was 13 billion years ago. The problem is, the farther you are, the harder it is to see you because then your light is very dim. So James Webb Space Telescope <laughs> is designed in a particular way that it is optimized for looking at some of the very first galaxies that formed in the universe a few hundred million years after the Big Bang. Hubble Space Telescope was lucky to occasionally find here and there a few of these young galaxies. And that was surprising because we didn't think that galaxies formed so early. 
But James Webb Space Telescope is particularly designed to pick out those galaxies. So that's where we are. Like, you know, that if Hubble Space Telescope gave us a sprinkling of those galaxies, James Webb Space Telescope is expected to give us thousands of those. We're speaking with Hampshire College professor and astronomer Salman Hamid. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about a serious, important, deeply disturbing subject and news that I didn't know about. We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Firefighters in Holyoke are working to put out a fire at a multi-story apartment building. The building is located on South Bridge Street near the intersection of Hamilton Street and the South Holyoke neighborhood of the city. No immediate word on the cause of the fire or possible injuries. The Westfield Police Department is investigating an accident around the area of 1400 Russell Road last night. A police spokesperson said nobody died as a result of the crash, but the accident involved a motorcycle and a truck. No further information has been released. Yvonne Gittleson, a state employee working as a program specialist for incarcerated people through the State Department of Education, is seeking to unseat Hampshire County Sheriff Patrick Kaelane. Gittleson says educating inmates is a major part of her campaign. Education reduces recidivism. That's the big, big push. And the Massachusetts legislature has said with criminal justice reform that we need corrections to evolve. The primary election is scheduled for September 6th. Senator Joe Comerford says a report released by Legislature's Joint Committee on COVID-19 and Emergency Preparedness and Management will make the state more prepared and resilient during catastrophes. Comerford, the co-chair of the committee, says it's our responsibility to learn the lessons so we're stronger together. The report makes 16 key proposals for policy and regulatory changes, including improving air quality in schools and pumping funds into local health departments. Temperatures warming into the low 90s for most of us this afternoon under mostly sunny skies, some scattered clouds in the afternoon. Humid and warm on Saturday with showers and storms likely. Some storms could be severe. Highs in the low to mid 80s. It's looking dry for Sunday and for the 4th of July on Monday with temperatures in the 80s. I'm Nick Oresco on 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. En un golpe a la lucha contra el cambio climático, la Corte Suprema limitó el jueves cómo se puede usar la principal ley contra la contaminación del aire del país para reducir las emisiones de dióxido de carbono de las centrales eléctricas. Con una votación de 6 a 3 con mayoría conservadora, la Corte dijo que la ley de aire limpio no otorga a la Agencia de Protección Ambiental amplia autoridad para regular las emisiones de gases de efecto invernadero de las centrales eléctricas que contribuyen al calentamiento global. La decisión, dijeron los defensores del medio ambiente y los jueces liberales disidentes fue un gran paso en la dirección equivocada. El fallo de la Corte podría complicar los planes de la administración para combatir el cambio climático. Su propuesta detallada para regular las emisiones de las centrales eléctricas se espera para finales de año. Aunque la decisión fue específica de la EPA, estuvo en línea con el escepticismo de la mayoría conservadora sobre el poder de las agencias reguladoras y envió un mensaje sobre posibles efectos futuros más allá del cambio climático y la contaminación del aire. 
En otras informaciones, la Corte Suprema dijo el jueves que el gobierno de Biden puede descartar una política de inmigración de la era Trump para hacer que los solicitantes de asilo esperen en México para audiencias en los tribunales de inmigración de Estados Unidos. Una victoria para una Casa Blanca que aún debe resolver el creciente número de personas que buscan refugio en la frontera sur de los Estados Unidos. El fallo tendrá poco impacto inmediato porque la política rara vez se ha aplicado bajo el presidente Joe Biden, quien la restableció por orden judicial en diciembre. Por su parte, el Departamento de Seguridad Nacional dijo que acogía con beneplácito el fallo y que continuará sus esfuerzos para terminar el programa tan pronto como sea legalmente permisible. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Space, a final This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Hampshire College professor and astronomer Salman Hamid. We were talking before we went on the air this morning about a story that I did not know. It's deeply disturbing, but I thought, Salman, you should share it with our listeners. So please do. Uh, thank you, Bill. And, and part of the reason for uh, talking about it is because uh, to me, that's the not the element of surprise, but it's in some ways it, it, like, you know, that people who are familiar with news, they read New York Times and other things like Bill, I would consider you as well, but it doesn't register. And the story uh, is about assassination of scientists. Now, uh, people would say, and I'm not gonna tell you the details just yet, like, you know, I'm just gonna tell you like, you know, that two scientists won a, uh, 35-year-old and another one, a 31-year-old, one an aeronautical engineer and one a geologist were poisoned uh, earlier, uh, late May, early May, early June, within a few days. Uh, it's strongly suspected that it's poisoning because they kind of died in a similar way uh, and they were healthy before that. Uh, they were, uh, there was another scientist uh, head of uh, a program that was assassinated in November 2020 and uh, these were all been covered by the New York Times, by the way, to, to be full credit. They ha these have been out in the news. Uh, there have been a long article about the November 2020 assassination of a scientist. And then five other scientists have been assassinated, ages somewhere between 32, 35, 62, 45, 50. Uh, and so those are other scientists. And I'm just giving you the ages because just to let you know that these are not sort of like, you know, somewhere like one was a PhD candidate, PhD candidate who was assassinated. He was uh, a, a, a 35 year old. Assassinated by whom? For what? Right. So that's for what, for what reason? So if I gave you, uh, I mean, I'm just giving you that when you are thinking about it, you go like, well, this happened at Los Alamos National Labs in the US. If I told you that these were the number of physicists that were assassinated by Russia against the US or China against the US, there would be an uproar. Well, these are all Iranian scientists. Uh, and uh, in they were assassinated. In some cases, it's well known by Israel or in the last two, the, the two poisoned ones, it's very strongly suspected that it's Israel, but uh, Israel denies it, but everybody else has sort of like, you know, um, it's considered that, yeah, it's okay. And the next reaction that comes in, and, and Bill, we were talking about it too, and you also said, oh, were well, they related to the nuclear program? 
Well, e either way, it's an irrelevant question, <laughs> even if they were, because they are scientists uh, and there is no tribunal that is deciding whether they are guilty or not. Uh, and there is like what level their engagement and they're th if there is a 31 year old, like, you know, to assassinate somebody out there. So I think it's a deeply problematic thing where even when New York Times has covered it, um, the appropriate outrage is not. It's about oftentimes, like in the November 20th, that was one of the heads of one of the uh, security, uh, one of their defense programs that was assassinated, that he was assassinated by a remote control, satellite controlled machine gun. And the article was very long and it talked about the technology of assassination rather than well, but he got assassinated, right? Like, you know, without a trial. Without... So these scientists who are being assassinated, some by poisoning, some, I take it, by other means, how do we know or what is known about who initiated the killings and why? Yeah, so, yeah, so, so the first uh, uh, assassination, uh, sort of like, you know, the uh, wave of assassinations, if you want to call, uh, was between 2007 and 2012. And that's when Israel had said, like, you know, that if the Iranian nuclear program keeps on going, they will retaliate. And some of those uh, were uh, sort of like, you know, uh, at that time, uh, like, you know, bomb is, uh, attached to a motorbike or like, you know, bomb or shootings and things like that. One where a scientist actually uh, did not die and they captured uh, the assassin. So some of the information comes from there. Uh, the one about the assassination in 2020, that was a major assassination of one of the top figures. So he was a top figure who got assassinated. Uh, New York Times had a long coverage on that in which I talked about, they talked about the technology of assassinations, but they also talked about that that required clearance from American government as well. So there, because it was such a high level assassination that it was there. And uh, the new ones that happened just last month, uh, those, Israel has said no, but people, most people actually do assume that it is there because Israel has said that. And I should also mention where our culpability comes in, where our responsibility comes in. Our being the United the States. US government. Our being the United States. And that is with, like Lindsey Graham was in Jerusalem uh, just this past uh, March, uh, just this year. And he, he said that, well, you can expect more of these quoted, quote, accidents. So, and, and Iran at that time had objected that this is giving, uh, this is endorsing assassinations. And sure enough, two months later, two people, two scientists got assassinated. So this is something that what I would like, I mean, again, people have strong opinions on this topic. But all I would like to say is just think about, I mean, I, I'm talking about as a scientist and as an American scientist, like, you know, people should understand that people are being assassinated simply because where they work and their, their age ranges go from 31 and up. And in one case, it was a PhD student and they are young people. No tribunal, no other thing. If we were to say there is a country that is picking out and killing scientists, I mean, I would think people would be, should be a little bit more outraged about it. There hasn't been an editorial. These have been mentioned in the journal Science and Nature, but no editorial 
no condemning. Like it should be a blanket, blanket condemnation by bodies of scientists, professional societies against any country that picks out and assassinates scientists from other countries. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Salman Hamid, who is a Hampshire College professor and astronomer, an extraordinary scientist. Thank you, Salman. Really appreciate it. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Hi, it's Jessica, owner of Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. As the weather gets warmer, I know many of you are thinking about your summer workout schedule. And if you're like me, it's all about finding work, life, and workout balance, which is why when you sign up at Fitness Together, you'll put a schedule together with your personal trainer that actually works for you, is stress-free, and will help you stay fit, healthy, and balanced. Visit us online today at fitnesstogether.com, Amherst, or Northampton, and sign up for your free consultation. Hey everyone, Gordon Oliver here. I am privileged, along with my co-pilot Tina Marie, to gather and share a community of people, organizations, and experts who are making a difference in improving and positively impacting the financial lives of others. Financial peace of mind is a marathon, not a sprint, so we're cutting through the clutter to help you attain or continue to attain financial freedom. If you like entertaining and informative facts, then you'll love this week's show with writer William Henry of FirstLightFacts.com with little-known facts that are Independence Day approved. This Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP. But what are we drinking in the wine bunker today? Random white wine. Yes. All right. Hello, I'm Random White Guy, and I'm going to be drinking random white wine. Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. The first one here is the uh, Gomez Cruzado from the Haro region of Rioja, and this is a white wine. Now, most people might be familiar with Viora, but this is also blended with 25% Tempranillo Blanco. I always forget that that's even a thing. Don't we all? The first sip almost seems puckering dry, but it really rounds out. A couple more sips into it, it, and it is lush and creamy. But it's not so creamy without acid. There's like a, there is yeah. a little bit of acid yeah, in there. When it's too creamy, I get really bored, and it's like what they call flabby, but with the acid, it braces it, and it makes it really yeah. good. This, this I want like scallops. <laughs> you mean scallops? I don't care. I want them. I care. Scallops. There we go. Thank you. Find your favorite wine and your next favorite wine at State Street. So, I have this friend from school. He told me that he hit his girlfriend during an argument. He said he had a few too many and it was no big deal. He says his dad hits him at home like that makes it okay to hit her. I've seen him mess with her at parties and I felt really weird about it. I didn't know what to do. Then Nelquit came into our class and talked about being a positive bystander. So, I realized there are some ways I can help. I can say, that's not okay and there's someone you can talk to. I called Nelquit's hotline and found out about counseling near here that's free and confidential. We all get angry sometimes, but there's no excuse for abuse. Nelquit, New England Learning Center for Women in Transition, offering 24-hour crisis line support, walk-in appointments, counseling, safe plan, legal services, and supportive supervised children's visitation. Please reach out to them. They'll be there. 479 Main Street, Greenfield. Nelquit.org. N-E-L-C-W-I-T.org. Information at 413-772-0871. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. The beat goes on. And this is Artbeat with our Artbeat correspondent, segment host, and overall artiste extraordinaire, one Donabel Cassis. <laughs> Donabel, the microphone is yours. 
<laughs> wow, nice intro, Bill. Thank you. Good morning. Now, this weekend is going to be hot. And if you're looking to beat the heat and get cool looking at art, head over to Gallery A3 in Amherst. This is the last weekend to see this special show. It's curated by artist and musician Terry Janor. It's called Syncopate, an homage to jazz, which brings together five artists inspired by a love of bold exploratory music. Terry Janor is here with us today. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Now, Terry, I know music has been an essential part of your life for a very long time. Can you tell us about that journey? Uh, in 30 seconds, it's uh, a journey that has uh, been my, has taken me through from the time I was a child, uh, started playing violin around seven or eight years old and have always played, started off playing European classical for about 15, 20 years. And then in my 20s, mid to late 20s, I began a, a new journey with improvised music and have played with uh, a number of greats and have led my own band internationally. And that's where I am today with with music. And, and, and I've had so many different uh, uh, paths that I've taken in other areas, non-music areas, but um, these days I'm really focusing on, on, on the music in various ways, performing and focusing on my visual art and curating on the music. Well, that's a great segue because I was just going to say that you're a self-taught visual artist and you've called yourself sort of a sculptor of sound and you share an affinity for music with the artists that you brought together at Gallery A3. Can you tell us about who these artists are and what we'll be able to see this weekend? Yes, so I think uh, originally I was asked to put a show together that consisted of of local artists and I broadened that to make it regional. And so two of the three of us, excuse me, two of the five of us are from Hartford, Connecticut. Um, so I'll start there. It's Donald Boudreaux, who is uh, trained as a painter and has shown at many, he's got his work at the Wadsworth Anthenaeum. Uh, they've collected a number of his works and uh, Donald and I go back because when I was, I was director of Augusta Savage Gallery for 30 years and we had two or three shows of uh, Donald's work. He has monoprints in this uh, show. Andres Chaparro, who's uh, I know as a painter and has been featured um, on, in a lot of projects. I, I, knew, I came to his work um, when he was doing a lot of painting, but this particular show has his mixed media collage work and they focus on uh, perform performers, uh, Miles Davis and um, uh, various uh, Charles Mingus and figures, but in very abstract form. Mm. Rodney Madison is local here and his work is every so often he's popping up in windows and and uh, various shows but he's a lovely painter his um, he's been painting for a while and uh, is uh, the son of a great 
painter out of Hudson, New York, Reggie Madison. Mm. And um, one, two, three, and Bobby Davis. Bobby is someone I've known since probably early 80s. And Bobby is an amazing photographer of musicians. And so his it's amazing pieces, his eye for for the moment, for rhythm, the right moment, and uh, the clarity of the and the emotion behind his photographs are just stunning. Mm. And, and when people see the photographs, they kept asking me, like, how close was he? But you know, <laughs> he's a magician. <laughs> yes, yeah, great so, lenses. <laughs> great lenses and great a great timing, you know. And so each of us, and I have my work is uh, has. Uh, it's fabric work, and uh, so I I sculpt uh, various things, abstract and figurative. But what I was going to say is, each of us takes a different. I I pulled. I decided what do I want to do for this show, and who do I want to bring in? And I just because I'm, I've just been funded commissions for uh, compositions with my ensemble, my sextet. I got a couple of very big grants and, and so all of my energy has been focused on my music and I said that's really what I want to highlight and who would best represent this topic of improvisation, of, of jazz. And so they do it in very different ways, each of them. I mean, I've seen images of the show, I, I want to check it out this weekend, and it really is an ensemble of art and you can feel, you can almost hear the music in the work. And I want you to talk a little bit, if you can, about the pieces that you have in the show and how you approach your studio practice. Oh, uh, for probably about 10, 15 years, I have focused on figures. And so I, I used to make uh, dolls that were, I'd say, about a foot long. And then they started getting bigger and uh, to about five, six feet. And one of them that I have in there is about five feet and it's against a six foot panel. Wow. Uh, and, and the panel is um, a series of letters that were written from my great grandmother to my grandmother in the uh, 20s, 1920s, when my grandmother first came from Jamaica to New York. And mm. so I had these letters silk screened onto canvas and they and then I paint over it. Anyway, that's the panel and it's um, and then it's uh, the figure is on top of that. And then there's another figure that's smaller in the show. Each of us has three pieces. Uh, Andres has more than that, but uh, most of us have three pieces. And the third piece is abstract and uh, it's my new direction and it's called the piano solo and it's I love working with the fabric and sculpting the fabric in this mm -hmm. way. I just um, I'm excited about that and the direction it's going to be taking me. Well, these works look incredible. If you want to see the show, it's called Syncopate, an homage to jazz. It's at Gallery A3 in Amherst on 28 Amity Street, you know, where the near Amherst Cinema. And is it open all weekend or just Saturday through Saturday? It's a Saturday, 7 p.m. it closes. 
Saturday, 7 p.m. it closes. Terry Janure, thank you so much for sharing your work with us and in this gorgeous show. Please check it out. You will be amazed and inspired. And we appreciate everything you do for the community, Terry. Thank you, Donna Bell, so much. Are the, are the pieces for sale? Absolutely. <laughs> That's a very important question. <laughs> I, it kind of occurs to me we might want to know that. <laughs> Well, well, it's true. Some of them um, uh, are, I mean, a, a famous people. So I wondered if they were sort of just for display or for sale. They're for sale. Most of them are. Some are not for sale, but most of them are for sale. Terry Janora, Donabel Cassis, thank you so very, very much. This has been Artbeat. Have a great weekend, everyone. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka, polka carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning polka carousel to the airwaves of the valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits? Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled, thoughtful memorial care. It's polka carousel every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, WHMP. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Dakin Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Dakin's many programs and services help companion animals and the people who love them. To make a gift, visit DakinHumane.org. The only live and local talk in the Valley and for the Valley. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton radio group station. It's 10 o'clock.